0: So it's Acts chapter 2. So you can turn to the book of Acts. I have no idea what page number it is on. Apparently 513. Uh, New Testament right after the Gospels. Acts chapter 2. So this is a description of the early church. Verses uh, 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. I really get started, Jonathan. Getting up on stage doesn't help the audio quality. Holding the microphone more than a foot from your mouth helps the audio quality, just so you know. (laughs) Uh, I was looking for something um, funny to play. I've played some clips when I've preached before and I didn't find anything that I thought was wholly appropriate, but I did find something you guys could check out on your own time. This is not part of the sermon, but there's a, a comedian has a series called Church Hunters, which is a spoof on house hunters. Pretty funny, but I felt a little convicted when they went into this church and said, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of classic, but it's, you know, it's contemporary. Last year, the pastor started untucking his shirts, and they were like, oh, that's good. So we're there, Jonathan, you and me, we're there. Let me pray before I get started. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your church, both in person and online. Father, I pray that you would indeed have this message be not from me, but from you. Lord, speak through me. We pray you'd bless this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's not uncommon for me to think about a topic for a long time, read about it research it, listen to podcasts about it, talk to other people, pray about it. And over time, I'll occasionally share something with one of the elders or with Jonathan that has been on my mind or my heart. And that happened a few weeks ago. Jonathan called me about something else. I don't remember what he called me to talk about, but I said, "Well, I'm going to mention this thing to Jonathan. And I did. And he said, oh, well, you want to preach on that in December? And I was like, well, not excited about that, but I'm willing as well. We'll see what God wants to do with that. And so that's what I'm doing. And I have to acknowledge it takes an awful lot of trust in me and in God for Jonathan and the elders to just hand over the pulpit on a topic especially like this. has not been previewed. has not been passed by them. So I will say that. So if I do something, say something that really offends you. Don't need to yell at the elders. It's my fault. So the topic that we're talking about is church. Jonathan's sermon last week was titled What Is a Successful Mission? And during that he touched on what he called the 3 Bs that sometimes people use to measure a successful mission or a successful church. Anybody want to tell me what those 3 Bs were? One of them? Bottoms, budget. What's the third one? Buildings. Buildings, budgets and bottoms. I think that Jonathan would probably, or I agree with Jonathan, what I got from the sermon was he thought that wasn't a great way to measure the success of your ministry or the success of your mission or certainly the success of your church. Those are probably really good metrics if you're measuring the success of a business, of a school, of a university, of a theater group. Those are probably really great metrics, but maybe not so much for the church. So before we can figure out what is a successful church, we probably need to know and I don't have a clicker, so Anne, you're going to have to try to do the slides, I guess, as best you can. should be pretty easy to stay with me. Um, so what is a church? How do we find a successful church if we don't know what a church is? So we all know that a church is the big white building in the center of a New England town with a steeple on it. That's not what I'm talking about. That building, I think we're going to call a church in our language, no matter how long it's been since a church actually met inside that building and did appropriate churchy things. So What is the church? And again, I'm not talking about the universal church, right? That's an easy answer. It's all believers of all times, everybody that put their faith in Jesus. Yep, that's the universal church. But what is a local church? And I am totally fine with people yelling out some thoughts. What makes a church a church? Gathering together. together. on together. On mission together. You guys are good. You can go ahead and put up the, the passage that Jonathan read for us. Hopefully it's big enough for you to see. I don't think my font color was the best choice. Read through that. What do those two verses about the early believers say? Do they give us any more insight in what it means to be the church? Praising God. Yep. Eating food. Eating <laughs> food meeting daily. You guys, you got it. So it's not a complicated sermon today, I don't think. If we strip away all the things that are not essential to the church, what are we left with? So one of the books I was reading by Brian Sanders, he stripped this down to what he called the irreducible minimum. In other words, if you weren't doing these things, you're not a church. If you're doing more, that's fine. That's great. There's nothing wrong with doing more. But if you're not doing these three things, you're not a church. And he defines it as this. His three things were worship, community, and mission. And in reading through that and in studying this, there's a fourth one that he doesn't mention, but it is so implicit in everything he says, and it's commitment. And I think we see that. If we look at this passage, we see that every day they continued. Every day they continued. That is commitment. That's a huge commitment. Every day they continued. Meeting together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together. That is community. They were meeting together, gathering together, sharing meals. Things you guys said. You guys are smart. You didn't even need this sermon. Maybe we need the end of it, I hope. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. That is community. Next it says they were praising God. It's worship. And finally, it tells us that God was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved, because they were on mission. So I'm going to quickly go through and define those three things. First one is worship. You probably, if I remember my slides well, need to skip a couple ahead, because I think I repeat that one, and yeah, there we go. One more. Oh, go back to that one. I missed that one altogether. So that was a, that's a picture from one of the books I read. Just sometimes diagrams are helpful for people worship, mission, and community, and you can see that where they all intersect, that black kind of a triangle, I'm sure there's a real name for it in geometry class, is the church. So worship, what is worship? Romans 12:1 and 2 says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I only put verse 1 on the screen. That's the key for worship there. Just like the word church, worship is a tough word for us because it's been kind of co-opted or hijacked to mean certain things. So when somebody says, I'm going to church, we picture a building or we picture something like that. When somebody says worship, I think it's a restricted word because most of us think of singing. What we did before I got up to preach. What, I, what we did before Jonathan gave announcements. Are not announcements worship? Are not, is not preaching worship? Is not many other things worship? I've pushed back for a long time, even though I am involved in it, in the, the thought that you call something a worship team or someone a worship leader because there's so much more to worship than singing songs of praise to God. So much more to it. Really what we mean is they're a music team or a song leader, but those terms have just not the kind of antiquated terms, I guess, in the church. Billy Graham had a song leader. So worship, how do we think of worship? Certainly it is singing praise to God, but it's so much more than that. Paul says that true and proper worship is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I mentioned that commitment wasn't one of the three things, but it was implied throughout. Sounds like a commitment to me. Sacrificing your body. What does that actually mean? If worship is reduced to singing and preaching for an hour a week, what is the power of the church? Is there any power in that? But if worship is every member of the church committing to follow the way of Jesus every day, every hour of their life, How powerful is that church? That's what we're called to. A group of people without worship, no matter how tight the bond or how unified the mission, they're not a church. If that was a church, then the fire station would be a church. Football teams would be church. CrossFit would be church. But they're not. Second one is community. What does it mean to be in community? John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I actually preached an entire sermon on that passage, so I don't need to reiterate a lot of that. You can go find that on the website. Our deepest longing, I think, in life is a place where we belong. Our deepest longing in life is to be loved and known And the church is not a church if we're not building deep relationships and getting to know one another, building sincere relationships. But the thing is, for a lot of us, being loved and known is our deepest longing and also our deepest fear. There's lots of things about us we don't want other people to know. We don't want them to see. And I think that that contributes to the popularity in a lot of ways of larger, more anonymous churches. Churches. You can go in, you can be part of the church, and nobody necessarily even knows you were there. But I think versions of church where community is optional, where you can be anonymous, means that perhaps you're not really the church. Or if you're that person going in anonymously, you're not part of the church. Community is not optional. It's not something we get to give a decision on whether or not we want to get to know the people in our church, whether or not we want them to know us. You see, this deep love and community Jesus called us to have for one another is not just life-giving for those of us in the church. It's the very thing that should identify us as followers of Jesus. That's what it says in that passage, right? By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the very thing that should identify us, and it's also the very thing that should make us attractive to the world around us. We're called to be a new family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. Matthew 12, 48 to 50, Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were outside waiting for him while he was speaking, and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The church should be attractive to the outcasts in our community, in our society, to the fatherless, to those without friends, to those without family, to those who need a place to belong. You see, in the passage we looked at, at the very beginning, and actually in the part, that part of Acts, it doesn't tell us that they were actually doing a whole lot of preaching. They certainly get sent out and, and all of that. We've been studying that for weeks. It's a huge part of it, going out in pairs and mission They were growing day by day because of the way that they met together, loved each other, and built community, and other people wanted to be a part of it. So finally, mission. God is a missionary God. Another topic that I'm passionate about, preached on our philosophy of mission, so certainly trying to go through these ones quickly. What does it mean that God is a missionary God? He's been on mission since the beginning. He sent his son to save us, to establish his kingdom here on earth. Jesus is the one who called his followers to be an ecclesia, an assembly, a church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus established, establishes, built, and is building his church. It's not a creation of man. Remember that the next time someone tells you they believe in God, but not the church. Churches are screwed up, a lot of them. They have flaws. But the answer isn't to jettison the church and say, I'm just going to worship by myself in my house. I believe in God, and that's all I need. That's not what the Bible says. It's not the way Jesus created it to be. Jesus told his people to assemble. Since our God is a missionary God... And has been on mission for a long time our mission is his mission he graciously through jesus has allowed us to take part in growing his kingdom he didn't need us he chose to involve us jesus called us salt and light what does salt do you can yell it out if you know besides make things taste good that don't taste good by themselves Yeah, disinfectant. It keeps things from rotting. It preserves things. It stops decay. We are to work to slow and stop the decay of the world around us. What do you see when you look around your community that's rotting? Do you see anything where salt might slow things down? Do you see any place that you could help? That's our mission. We're called to be light. Even the smallest light pushes back the darkness. Can you think of some dark places in our community that could use some light? All right, I said the sermon was simple, but this next one you have to think about a little bit. I think the next slide has it. The church was not given a mission. The mission was given a church. The church was not given a mission. The mission was given a church. See, I said God is a missionary God, that he's been on mission for a long, long time. I mean, read the Old Testament, read his pursuit of his people, sending his son. And then when Jesus died and went back to the Father, he established the church, gave them commands to keep carrying on the mission, the mission that started long before the church. The church was not given a mission. The mission was given a church. If that is true, and I believe it is, then it is inarguable that a church that is not on mission is not a church. It's just not possible. A group of people with community and worship but not on mission are like salt that has lost its saltiness or a light hidden under a bowl. Jesus says, salt that loses its saltiness is good for nothing. should be thrown out and trampled. I wonder to myself if that's the reality of the lukewarm church that Jesus talks about or that John writes about in Revelation. A church that's meeting together, that's worshiping, but they're not doing their jobs as salt and light. They've lost their saltiness. They've hidden their light. All right, that's really the end of my three part sermon. It was really short, but I'm not done talking, unfortunately, for you. When we planted Cornerstone, I think I, like many others, came into it with a flawed vision, a flawed understanding of what a church is. So for that, I guess I should apologize. I went to Emmanuel for more than 30 years before helping to start Cornerstone. I think I was probably more thinking of starting a model of Emmanuel. With some tweaks for some things that i thought could be improved or putting some things on hold that we don't have the people or funding to do but ultimately i don't think i really had a strong understanding of what the church was which is kind of sad for somebody who'd nearly graduated seminary who had been in church his whole life who had been on a board of elders i don't think i really spent enough time thinking about what is the core of the church What should we be doing when we get started in Westford? I can't remember how many conversations I was involved in at one time or another where people, including me, would say, well, once we grow to like 100 people, then we'll have the the momentum and the strength we need to do the things that a church should be doing to carry out our children's ministry, our, our nursery, our VBS, our youth program, our outreach team, our missions team, Etc., etc. And boy, once those things are fired up and we get a a men's group going and a women's group going, then the church is going to grow because we're going to have so many good programs for people. None of those things are bad. Churches do and should have them. But they're not the core of the church. They're not what a church should be measured against for success. Your church is not successful because you put out a great VBS. As I saw our attendance not grow, hold steady, and then ever so slowly start to decline. Over a several year period, I have to admit I was discouraged. At times when a family would leave, I would be discouraged again. Sometimes it was hard. We opened our house for um, several dates in 2019, and a lot of times nobody came. It made me sad. I thought about leaving the church for the same reasons lots of people do. I need a church with a better youth group. I need a church that isn't so needy, that I don't need to serve so much. I'm tired. But I couldn't stop thinking that you don't leave your family. Over time, God started showing me that being small is not bad. In fact, it's good. I'm not going to argue it's better. There are strengths and weaknesses to both. But I think it's enough for me to believe that being small is good. A large church is expected to be well-run, maybe even flawless. Like a machine, they strive for perfection in worship, communication, their publications, their Sunday morning experience. When they fall short, they're criticized. If you commit to production and performance excellence and come up short, it is a failure. Yet, if you're committed to being small, simple, humble, pure, when you come up short, you're simply reminding people of what you are. Being small should remove so much pressure. We expect perfection out of inanimate objects, but living things have flaws. Nobody likes it when their car breaks down or their furnace doesn't work. But living things are expected to make mistakes, to have imperfections. Even the most beautiful things in nature, if you look at them, flowers, things like that, they are not perfectly symmetrical, but they are beautiful. Paul reminds us that in our weakness, the strength of God is perfected. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Large churches cannot accomplish community without small groups. Point number two on why it's good to be small. Sorry, I kind of went straight through that. In fact, Some would say that the small groups at a large church are really where real church happens, where relationships can build. But we can have community right here on a Sunday morning or any gathering of Cornerstone. I think community has been one of our strengths since day one, to be honest. Thinking back to pre-COVID and pre-Sunday morning, every Saturday night, 45 minutes after the service ended, there was 40 people here talking, playing, praying, praying. Eating. It was good. I think community is one of our strengths, and I think it was our, one of our strengths because of our size. Third point Jesus taught us that great things come from something very small. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, according to Jesus. It should also be comforting, I think, that 60% of churches in America have less than 75 people. Remember that God used persecution to spread out the early believers. He didn't allow them to have one big church in Jerusalem, one big gathering that was doing everything right that people would have to come to them. He sent them out, and he used persecution to do it. It seemed to me he didn't want them gathering by the thousands. He wanted them gathering by the dozens, maybe less In homes throughout the area, interacting with their friends and neighbors, making a difference in their community. Fourthly, small things must rely on the power of God. And when great things happen, they must give credit to God. Large and powerful things tend to forget their need for God. They often fall into the trap of thinking that they accomplish these things with their resources, with their power, with their planning, with their intelligence. So with all of that laid out, I want to share what I believe, and this is a a word that might upset some people, I believe to be a prophetic word that God gave to me that is for us as a church. I want you to hear it, I want you to listen to it, I want you to test it, and if you don't agree, come talk to me about it. I'm not 100% sure. If I were, I think that might be weird. But I'm sure enough that I'm going to share it with you because Jonathan asked. <laughs> the story God kept bringing to mind for me was the story of Gideon. If you're not familiar with the story, you can read it in Judges 6 through 8. Gideon takes his army down against the Midianites. Gideon had 32,000 men, and the Bible tells us he was outnumbered 4 to 1. Anybody remember what God did next? Sent some men home. God said, You got too many men. If you win this battle, I know your hearts, you're going to boast. You did it. You're strong. You're mighty. 22,000 men went home. Gideon now had 10,000 men left. What did God say then? Still too many. Took them down. They had a little test about how you drink. God apparently is in the details. 300 people did it the right way. 300 people remained. Gideon had an army of 300 against more than 128,000. Then God said, all right, time to go into battle. No one could claim credit for God's victory there. 300 people against 128,000. We are in a battle too. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Earlier in that book, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said this, His intent, now through the church, was that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our function as salt and light. So it says our battle, our struggle is against the rulers and authorities, forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And earlier in the book he said this is what he established the church for, to make Christ known in those same places. That's why we're here. So Here's something amazing to me. Our average attendance pre-COVID was 61 people at a service. Do you know that gives us exactly the same odds as Gideon's army when compared to the population of Westford? Not that we're fighting them literally, not that everyone in Westford is not a Christian. There are a lot of Christians in Westford that go to different churches, but still the, the vision for that and the surrounding communities. Why should we feel bad that we're small? Why do we feel like we can't accomplish something because we're small? God will accomplish it through us. So here's the message I think God has us for us today and I already had it up for you. There's a few of them. I think you need to go backwards though. There you go. Here's the message that I got. You are exactly the size I want you to be. And if I make you smaller, it will be for my glory. Small things are great in the kingdom of God. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Be the church. Love one another as I have loved you. Join me in my mission. Worship me truly and properly by offering your bodies as living sacrifices. And the final one, the metrics don't matter, the commitment does. I saw some nodding heads when I was saying, can you think of anything around you that's rotting, that could use some salt, anything around you that's dark and could use some light? That's what we're called to as a church. Please play with me. Father God, I thank you for what you've done at Cornerstone, what you continue to do at Cornerstone, what you will do at Cornerstone. Lord, I thank you for establishing the church. I thank you for your faithfulness to your bride. Lord, you've called us to some simple yet difficult things. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the power to walk in those things. Lord, we pray that we would be the church in the way that you intend. That we would continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our practice of worship, whole life worship and community. really building deep relationships and in the mission that you started before the church even began. Father, we love you. We thank you for your sustaining power and your great power that's perfected in our weakness. Help us not to be ashamed of our weakness, ashamed of our size, ashamed when we fall short but to instead know that that's when you are glorified most. Amen.